Uh, we're in the second week of our Revelation series where Jesus is speaking to a church or churches that are under attack spiritually and physically. Sin and suffering were front and center in their lives as they were facing a literal living hell that was breaking loose all around them. Tonight we read chapters 2 and 3 where Jesus promises rewards and wrath depending on their response to him. These same promises apply to us and all believers everywhere. We know that because of what it says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 22. It says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So whoever is sensitive to God and wants to hear his word, that means that they'll listen or read these words where Jesus is painting a picture for us of what it's going to look like in the end. When Jesus decimates the earth in order to bring the new earth into reign which was meant for us all along before Adam and Eve sinned. So we'll go back to the way it was before Adam and Eve chose sin. So let's pray to that end. Lord, we thank you for the grace of this message you give us in Revelation, where we know what's coming and we can attach our hope to it. Lord, I pray it would inspire our love for you, our obedience to you, Lord, and our boldness to proclaim your gospel until you come. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to do some massive readings throughout this series because I at least want us to be exposed to all of this wonderful book. Uh, I will not be able to comment on every verse that's read. And so these will be probably the longest readings we've ever had at Awaken. So you'll definitely want to grab your Bible or your phone and open up to Revelation because um, we're not going to put whole chapters up on the screen. I think you'd probably get dizzy reading that. So Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. It's at the very end of your Bible, so it's an easy book to find. All right, here we go. Get a little bit of water here. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. 
I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, Antipas, my faithful witness, who is put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual morality and eating food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering, and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations, That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you'll not know at what time I'll come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, but though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come to the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I'll write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, 
the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I also will write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel to you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want to start with encouragement that Jesus provides here for all of the churches, because keep in mind, these were literal churches, but he's also speaking to all churches everywhere throughout time, and each of these churches demonstrates a different level of health and fruitfulness that uh, exist in various churches. So first, Jesus knows us truly. We see that in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Isn't this crazy? These churches have endured so much. And Jesus says, though you're doing a lot of the right things, you're dead. That's sobering, isn't it? That's sobering. To be sure, the enemy's primary attack is for us to think more highly of ourselves and our fellowship than we ought, instead of humbly repenting that our righteousness comes from Christ alone, not from our works, no matter how together we seem. We are always to pray for Jesus to overwhelm us with the power of his grace and our need for it. That's why pretending to be mature when we're struggling is ridiculous. Because when we pretend that everything's fine, first of all, we deceive ourselves and we have to hide to keep up the illusion that everything's fine. Second, others don't benefit from our transparency, and instead they think that their struggles are unique, whereas transparency breeds more transparency and vulnerability and closeness both with the Lord and with one another. And finally, it limits our intimacy with the Lord because we're saying, in effect, we don't need the cross. When we don't confess our sin to Christ and we pretend to have it all together, we're saying we don't need the cross. It's like pretending to be a firefighter. If I were to do that, nobody's going to win, right? Everybody's going to get burned. So it is when we pretend that we're further along than we are. So second encouragement from Jesus is that Jesus loves us deeply. And like a good father, he disciplines those he loves, right? Now, many of us haven't grown up with a father who disciplined us, but that is a very loving thing to do. It's much easier just to ignore him, right? But to discipline those we love, or those children we love, it says in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. It's good that we can't hide from Jesus because there's still hope as long as there's breath in our lungs. We don't have to have it all together. We can come to him and repent like a little child, admit that we're wrong and we need him. 
We can confess our sins to him and take a a seat at his table of delights and pleasures. And we can do so because of what John Piper, a pastor that I like to listen to, uh, what he says in his book, The Pleasures of God, which is a worthy read. I love it because the focus is on Christ, not on me and my problems, but on him. And it says this, John Piper, I thought of John's vision of Christ in Revelation 1. We read this last week. His face was like the sun shining in full strength, verse 16. My glimpse that morning lasted maybe five minutes before the strength of the risen sun turned my face away. Who can look upon the sun shining in full strength? The answer is that God can. The radiance of the sun's face shines first and foremost for the enjoyment of his father. This is the son whom I love. He is my pleasure. You must fall on your face and turn away, but I behold my son in his radiance every day with love and never-fading joy. I thought to myself, surely this is the one thing implied in John 17, 26, that the day is coming when I'll have the capacity to delight in the son the way the father does. My fragile eyes will get the power to take in the glory of the sun shining in his full strength just the way the father does. The pleasures The pleasure God has in his son will become my pleasure, and I will not be consumed, but enthralled forever. We we repent and we turn from our sin because one day when we get our new bodies, we'll be able to handle the weight of glory. We can't handle that now. John fell as though dead, we read last week, when he was in the presence of Christ. And so this is demonstrated through repentance so we can fully enjoy his glory. There's nothing more joyful beautiful, abundant, life-giving, and just plain awesome than the glory of God. That's why I think a lot of the books and teachings we hear today are very much just Christian self-help, where we're focused on us and our problems and little scriptural prescriptions that can help us through. And I'm not saying those are all bad, but I think a far more worthy pursuit is to fix our eyes on Jesus and who he is and his character And all the sin and brokenness of our life is just burned away and healed away in the radiance of his glory. It's what we all long for way deep down, this glory of God, because we are knit together by God in our mother's womb, and he made us to want more than this world can ever possibly offer. So next we see Jesus praising the church for something else, for for faithfully uh, persevering in the word, that is God's word. The word of Christ. It says in Revelation 2.2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. This was directed to the church at Ephesus, but again, it's for all churches. They were commended for persevering in the word of Christ. They were working hard, it says too. We don't hear that very much, do we? That, that living for Christ does involve hard work. That is our will meeting the power of the Holy Spirit that we're not promised a life of comfort and ease. In fact, just the opposite. They were working hard. They also possessed great discernment and love for right doctrine and they were able to see who the false apostles were and were able to avoid them. And they they were encouraged by Christ in that. The same church is further praised in the next verse, verse three, Revelation 2, 3. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. It reminds me of Galatians 6 verse 9 where Paul says, don't grow weary in doing good. Because growing, it's easy to grow weary in doing good, isn't it, young life leaders? Right, because we all know high school students are tremendous at remembering key events in your life and remembering, you know, that you struggle too. No, of course not. 
right? We were all in high school at one point. Those uh, uh, faithful missionaries to high school and middle school campuses that are involved in the lives of youth, they do it because they love them and they love them sacrificially. But it can be, uh, it, it can make you weary. And in context here, the church was dealing from pressure from false teachers, from, uh, uh, from Jews who weren't really Jews at all, who really didn't love God, but really just wanted to power grab. And then, of course, Rome, uh, who hated Christians. They were trying to reach out to others only to be mocked, ridiculed, and tortured. We see the same encouragement in Revelation 2.19. Jesus says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So this is the church at Thyatira. They were growing in their endurance and fruitfulness, even in the face of ridiculous persecution. So then the church at uh, Ephesus is commended for guarding the church internally. It says in, uh, uh, the, first, it says in uh, the first three verses of chapter two that they did not tolerate wicked people and that they didn't follow false teachers and that they were doing, they were enduring patiently. Okay, so... They were commended for guarding the church internally in terms of sanctification. And the church at Thyatira was essentially praised for advancing the church externally. They were doing more, it says, than they did at first. Right? So we see this praise from Christ for faithful perseverance. We also read Jesus complimenting uh, one of the churches for faithful proclaiming the gospel amidst extreme opposition. We see that this is the admonition that Jesus levels at churches more than any other. Share the gospel no matter what it costs you. By far, way more than any other admonition. And he says here in Revelation 2.12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. This was aimed at the church at Pergamon, and evidently it was a very evil city. It says it was where Satan lived. I mean, I don't think it gets any worse than that. I think that's probably way worse than Columbus, would be my guess. Uh, the church's most ferocious enemy was Rome, and they had their tentacles in both Asia's political and religious affairs. In fact, the first temple in Asia to be dedicated to the emperor cult was built in Pergamum in 29 BC by Augustus. So they had a long history of pagan worship. And we already said last week that it was required by these churches to, work the, to worship the emperor who is seen as divine. And if they didn't, they would lose their life, employment, family, and so on. Uh, but beyond the emperor worship, there were also other gods they had to worship. You see, these various tradesmen, which basically everybody was, they were a part of guilds. Think uh, a union, but demonic. Okay, many of you think unions are demonic, but they're not. I mean, these, these guilds were actually demonic. Uh, and what it was, let's say you were a blacksmith or you were a baker. You were in a guild that worshiped a particular pagan god. And you had to worship these gods. And if you didn't, again, you would lose your job. And if you didn't worship these emperors or these guild pagan gods, then you were seen as dangerous to society because you were rocking the boat. And today we're often thought to be dangerous to society as well, aren't we? oftentimes seen as anti-gay, anti-women, intellectually weak, racist, anti-science, and so on, and we're none of those things. As a whole, the church is not. Certainly there are churches, but as a whole, that is not who the church is. 
So we have the same increasing temptation to shrink back in fear, yet this church was praised for not cowering. And they stood to lose so much. In fact, Antipas is mentioned as a martyr in the city, as a specific person who died in their midst, and yet they were still encouraged to continue to share their faith. The third praise was aimed at Smyrna, and they were to trust God amidst testing in the world. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, it says, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. The church at Smyrna, and again, all churches, will suffer, it says, for 10 days, which is symbolic of a short period of time. It wasn't a literal 10 days, I don't believe. And as they were ripped from their homes and taken from their families and imprisoned and executed, they were to remain faithful in communicating the gospel. And we also see that God is sovereign in his testing, that he uses it to make his people more like himself. We said last week that it's, it speaks much louder when we suffer for his name, even than when we speak in his name, because we mirror the broken body of Jesus on the cross. And we see this time of suffering that this church went through in Ephesus. Polycarp was the second century bishop in Smyrna, and he would have been all too familiar with Revelation. The Roman governor commanded him to simply take a pinch of incense and offer it to the emperor. I mean, wouldn't that have been easy to justify? Just a little five-second thing. All I have to do is offer this incense. It's easy to justify because if I live, I can go on serving the church as a bishop. If I die, I'm done. But he didn't. He was faithful till the end. He was burned at the stake, and that didn't work, so they also they had to stab him to kill him. And right before he died, he said this, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs, I may share the cup of Christ. So this church faced death and remained committed. And these are just a couple stories they had. They were seeing unspeakable atrocities done to the church. This was not religion. They were dying for a relationship with Jesus Christ. And because they saw him as the hope of the world. We also see uh, Sardis complimented by Jesus for their purity. So loving God amidst temptation in the world. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 4. It says, Jesus says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. So a few were praised for their purity. But can you imagine how difficult it must have been to maintain purity in this church? I mean, one of the primary ways that they worshiped was through temple prostitutes to their pagan gods. And on top of that, the bathhouses and the gymnasiums were beyond debaucherous. Immorality of all sorts was praised and easily justified, even, I would say, even more so than in our culture then. I think this comment from Christ would be leveled at the church in America today. There are some who have remained pure in the church, but so many have disregarded God's protective plan for sexuality and in place have given themselves to cheap sex, online fantasy, and a disregard for the God-given weight put on gender. God created them male and female, not 15 different variations to reflect his image. And now I'm not talking about those who struggle with sexual sin and repent. I'm talking about ones in the church in America today who give themselves to immorality and don't really care. We're called to purity 
Yes, it must, it, it, it's going to make us look and sound weird, but the last I checked, we're not being burned at the stake for it. And maybe that would be good if we were. Because the more God's church has been persecuted throughout history, the more the church is purified, the stronger the saints are, and, and the more real and life-giving their faith is. Now, here's where we make a very uncomfortable transition. So Jesus has been talking so far all these great encouragements to the churches. I mean, unbelievable encouragements. Like, you have endured to the point of death. You are committed to purity. All these great praises that, I mean, if we were to see a church that did any of these things, you know, we would be going to their conferences. We'd be getting together with their pastors. We, we would be connecting with their home group leaders, trying to learn as much as we could. But then Jesus levels these incredible rebukes at these churches. And the reason I separated, separated the, the praises from the rebukes is I think it adds weight to the incredible standard that Christ holds his church to. It really is impossible. And it takes humility and a leaning on Christ and the, and the Holy Spirit in order to walk out what he's called us to do. I think his standard is higher than any of us, any of us think right now. The first is um, Jesus rebukes tolerating sin. So let's, let's start with Pergamum, who again was praised for persevering even in the face of martyrdom. Remember Antipas, and it was said it was the home of Satan. So, you know, pretty dark place. He's rebuked for this, Revelation 2, verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You notice how what Jesus does here is he, he marks out faithfulness, but Jesus is looking for all of his saints to be purely devoted to him, not just the pastors, not just the home group leaders, not just the members, everybody. Everybody who calls him Lord to be wholly devoted. He doesn't want even one to be in rebellion. He wants his church to be pure. So there were amazing saints in each of these churches, but, but there were some who had who'd fallen away. And if you've fallen away tonight, you should be afraid. You should be very afraid because these passages are aimed at, at us if we've fallen away from him. So John here is using an Old Testament illustration of God's command against eating food sacrificed to idols, and he rebukes the church at Pergamum for doing the same. Now, some of you are thinking, Chris, didn't Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 teach that it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols as long as it doesn't cause another brother or sister to sin? Yes, but remember in context here, the guild gods, these gods the guild, guilds possessed, they were... Uh, uh, in, we don't know what, but in some type of ritual sacrifice, we're offering meat to these gods and eating them in a way that was, that was uh, engaging in false worship, in cultish practices. So evidently, Pergamon was jumping right back into their old way of life that they had before Christ. And without time for too much detail, they were deceived by the teaching of the Nicolaitans who were in, uh, encouraging compromise with worldly morality and pagan doctrine. So in, in short, the church at Pergamum was no different in many cases than the world. So they had an affinity for Christ. At least some of them did based on the praises that they received. But they were blending in with the world. Isn't that sobering? That you can have both. 
You can be a standout church in so many ways, but, but still have some serious dysfunction that, that should sober us. We can blend in with the culture with a materialism that kills our desire for Christ. We can give way to social acceptance instead of boldly sharing our faith. We can seek escape in, in uh, all kinds of online addictions, including pornography and entertainment, and on and on it goes. We can do all kinds of church stuff while all the, all the while starving our actual intimacy with the Lord. Just because we're strong in one area doesn't mean we're not blind in the other. You know, the, I really think these letters are to put us all in a place where we say, Jesus, I can't possibly do this on my own. I cannot measure up to this standard of purity, this standard of devotion, this standard of sacrifice. I need you. We're not supposed to be able to do it on our own. We're not. I think one practical thing that we can do as a church is to attend our 5 p.m. prayer meeting before church up in Asia's Hope Space. It's uh, an, office of, an office of another ministry that's housed in this church that's been nice enough to loan us their space on Sunday nights. You just go up the steps right there, go all the way up till you can't go up anymore, and the door's right there. Uh, and I encourage you, if you can't make it to that time, maybe figure out another time where you can pray with saints. I don't care if it's on the phone. But I think one very humbling thing we can do to express our dependence on the Lord that we can't meet these standards on our own is through prayer. I can't tell you the things that God has done through the last year that we've been devoted to prayer on Sunday, all the things. I mean, it's been amazing. Just to give you a few examples, I feel like part of the growth of safe families. So we, we pray about that weekly. We pray that God would give us a launching pad for missions where we'd have a system to help train and develop those who are called to missions. God gave us that through Frontiers, and, and we have that, uh, that said launching pad and system for developing missionaries right there on our missions table. And you'll hear about that if you go to Sarah's meeting this next week. And so many others. God bring Young Life leaders and students into this church. And I could go on and on and on. The real ministry of God's people is prayer. The acting out in faithfulness is just picking up the fruit. It really is. The Lord wants his house to be called a house of prayer. It's a great next step. So get into a corporate prayer time of some sort, even if you can't come to that one at five. Um, so moving on here, we see another rebuke from the Lord aimed at Ephesus and Laodicea, and that is uh, the rebuke against complacency. So first, Laodicea, Revelation 3, verse 15. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Now, early on in my faith, I thought this, you know, it's better to be hot or cold rather than lukewarm thing that Jesus said, that rebuke. I thought it meant it's better to be like crazy about Jesus or just forget about him altogether, you know, than to be in the middle. But that's not what this is saying. What it's saying, if you look in context here in Laodicea, the water they had access to was lukewarm, it was poisonous and it was disgusting. 
So Jesus is saying it's better to be hot or cold because they had to channel water from other cities into Laodicea. One area they brought water from was cold, so it was refreshing. Another area was warm, so it was uh, where the water came was healing. So Jesus is saying it's better to be hot or cold. The gospel, Jesus brings the refreshment of cold water and the healing of warm water. And he's saying, if you're lukewarm, then I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth. I mean, these are intense challenges given to the church. So this church was nasty. They were rich, fat, happy, comfortable, and apathetic. You see, Laodicea was notorious for their wealth. Namely, they had access to huge gold deposits. They had the ability to make clothes dazzlingly white, which should have been very difficult in that time because it's dirty. Uh, and they also had access to medical-grade salve that could help all kinds of ailments that was, was shipped around to the known world. And yet, Jesus says, you have all this wealth. They were so wealthy, in fact, that when they had... Uh, uh, a natural disaster, an earthquake that destroyed their city. And they told Rome, we don't want you to rebuild because we're so wealthy, we can make a Colosseum even bigger than you'd give us. We can make aqueducts even better than you. That, that's how wealthy, I mean, can you imagine a state saying no to the federal government? You know, we're gonna do it on our own from you know, all of our, our rich assets. So he says, even though you have all this, you are poor and you're blind and you're naked even though you think you have all that stuff covered. We can have commendable outward behaviors, but be rotten inside. In fact, the message of the gospel is that we're all full of it. We desperately need Jesus all the time. None of us have it together, not even one. That even goes for Christians. We don't have it together and we never will. So is the repentance of the church in our America. We are the most wealthy and comfortable and powerful people who have ever lived, and yet we're weak, blind, poor, and naked. You might remember the various pictures that were painted of Christ that we read about in Revelation chapter 1. One of them was that his eyes are depicted as blazing fire, meaning he sees it all. He sees our hearts. He knows who we really are, and he loves us anyway, and he doesn't want us to hide that. He wants us to repent of it. He wants us to rely on his righteousness, not our own. These messages to the church are is supposed to bring them to their knees and say, none of you have it together. Yeah, you're doing all these great things, but dot, 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 dot. And remember, Ephesus was praised for hard work and separation from wicked people and false teaching, yet the Lord also levels a rebuke at this young church. In Revelation 2, verse 4, it says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But hold on, I thought Jesus praised the church at Ephesus. Didn't we just read that a few moments ago? He did, but they failed to remain in love with Jesus. And this rebuke is in contrast with what Paul wrote 35 years earlier to the church in the book of Ephesus. He writes that he never stopped giving thanks for them because of their faith in Christ and their love for the saints in chapter one. 
Most of the Ephesian Christians now were in the second generation and, and the church tends to soften as it goes on into the generations and may that not be the case here. Most of the, um, uh, and they were also known for retaining their purity of doctrine and life and that they'd maintained a high level of service, yet they lacked a deep devotion to Christ. Even though everything on the outside looked great. Jesus offers them a a stern warning that if they fail to come back to their first love, he's going to remove their lampstand, meaning the way that they illuminate Ephesus with the gospel. They're going to lose their witness if they don't come back to their first love. And you know that happened? If we look at history, the church continued and was later the scene of a major church council. But after the 5th century, both the church and the city declined. The immediate area has been uninhabited since the 14th century. So Jesus was right on, and I could share other examples of the history of these rebukes actually coming true in these various areas. We've seen this in much of Europe where the Reformation took root. That's why we're here. And now many of these churches are just museums. So our steps of obedience are clear in response to Jesus' commands. First, we need to be a people who repent regularly. That is, we turn from our sin and we turn to Christ. And we see it pop up so many times just in these two chapters. Just to give a couple examples, Revelation 2, verse 5. Again, Jesus is saying all these things to the churches. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And then verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus is saying to his church, I will come against you and fight you with the sword of my mouth. You will be my people and you will be pure. Revelation 2.22, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. We read in Hebrews that God says that he'll judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. He sees it all. He sees it all and we are to fear the Lord, respect him, and know that he loves us and know that he's full of grace, but also he doesn't tolerate sin because that would make him evil because sin brings death. And it brings pain and it, it breaks up and tears apart families and friendships and marriages and churches. So it may seem severe, but it's just because we are desensitized to sin and we don't see it for the poison that it is. And then in chapter 3, verse 3, remember therefore... What you've received and heard, hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you'll not know at what time I'll come to you. In verse 16 of the same chapter, so because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And he he gives these specific calls to repent. Just a couple examples, apathy. Man, if we're apathetic, and I know about you, I fight with apathy, I don't know, about every 30 minutes, if not more, probably more than that, that we repent of that. Repent of it. It doesn't have to be a long, you know, grab that take the belt off and no. Lord, man, I'm naturally on my own apathetic. Thank you that I have you, Holy Spirit. Right now I submit to you. Also, purity. I mean, man, he says, I will make those who commit adultery with her, that is this symbolic Jezebel, suffer intensely unless they repent. So, man, tonight, if we're in sexual sin, let's let's repent. Let's just turn from it. 
Lord, I'm done. The enemy wants to know you can't turn because if you turn, you're not going to be as important and you're, you know, you're not going to matter as much. And he, he wants to uh, communicate all these lies deep into your soul about how you will lack value and worth if you, don't, if, if you pull yourself out of sexual sin. But the opposite is true. The second you walk away from it, you'll be able to see. And you'll be able to sense the intimacy and the forgiveness of the Lord. And you'll think, man, that, it's not even a sacrifice worth comparing to leave this old life compared to the glory of Christ. Uh, now, in context here, this is written to Christians who are not thriving, but ones who are struggling. And the challenge is not to fall away. Because do you know, it is impossible for a Christian, a genuine believer, to fall away. It says in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, that it's by grace you've been saved through faith and not by works so that no one can boast. So we are saved by grace, not by works. But then we also read that those who truly know Jesus will persevere until the end. And we read that in Revelation 2. It says in Matthew 24, 13, but the one who stands firm until the end will be saved. And Hebrews 3, 14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Because Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it's by grace we've been saved, by faith and not by works. But then what does it say in verse 10? We, we usually skip that. It says that we're saved for good works. We're saved by grace, through faith, for good works. That is supernatural works that the Holy Spirit empowers us to do. That's why if, if someone's prayed a prayer, but there's never been any outward and visible fruit, it's worth questioning your salvation. Do you really know them? If they, now, I do think ones can fall away for a season, maybe even a long season, but then come back to Jesus. But man, if there's, if there's never been any fruit in your life, you should question, am I playing church or do I really know Jesus? I think that's a big part of the message we read here in Revelation 2 and 3. To close, we can all respond to these challenges from the Lord by boldly proclaiming the gospel. The admonition, again, repeated more than any other, is to boldly proclaim the gospel no matter the cost to us. And I think the reason why the enemy has shut the mouths of saints in our country is, number one, we're afraid we're going to look stupid or lose friends or appear awkward. Number two, I think it is a uh, double standard we put on the Holy Spirit. On one end, we say, well, it's the Holy Spirit who convicts individuals of sin, and I'm not the Holy Spirit, so what does it really even matter what I do? I mean, I don't have to feel pressure, but it's a double standard because in the same breath, none of us would dare say, you know what, it's the Holy Spirit that sanctifies me, so I'm not going to worry too much about not committing adultery or not murdering because the Holy Spirit will sanctify me. I can just give full vent to my anger and not worry about it. The command to share the gospel is no less of a command than do not murder. And it occurs more often in scripture. To share him, to share him. Because this message needs to go out that he's coming back. And he's coming back to judge the earth. And we read in Revelation 2.11, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Because the first death is when our heart stops beating. The second death is for those who don't know Jesus Christ and, 
And after they die, they'll be judged and they'll be forever separated from God for all eternity. We, we don't want that. We want to have compassion. We want to have tears for those who don't know Jesus. We'll reign, from, we'll reign with him one day and, and our choice to follow him will be seen as the most logical, wise choice, that, the only choice that one could make and be in their right mind. So let's turn from our sin and share him without fear until he returns. In Jesus' name, amen.